And peace can only be revealed to us through a disciplined spiritual practice. One rooted in and basic in the basic notions that violence is never a solution. Yeah. We cannot win peace at the point of a gun. Mm. We cannot win peace at the threat of dropping bombs. We cannot win peace. Um, you can beat a dog and get it to behave. Sooner or later, that dog can, sooner or later, that dog may turn on you or turn on someone else. Mm. Um, you got to accentuate the positive. You're listening to Karen Swain, teacher of deliberate creation, accentuating the positive, showing you a way to a better life. Accentuating the positive, it's not just bad, it's sanity. Who in their right mind would accentuate anything else? Hello and welcome to another show, Accentuating the Positive with Karen Swain. Always a blessing to be with you all today. And of course, like I say, every show, please remember to like, subscribe, tell your friends about it, get them to subscribe to whatever platform you're listening on and leave me your comments. Let me know what you're thinking, what you're feeling. I love to hear from you. Well, today I have another delight to introduce you to the wonderful Zen Buddhist monk, Claude Ashin Thomas. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Claude. Claude Ashin. Am I saying it right? That, that's that's pretty good. It's on Shin. Okay, on Shin, on Shin. There you go. There you go. There you go. So, wow, Claude Anshin has had an amazing, amazing life. Let me just ask you, what does on Shin mean? It obviously means something. Yes, it's uh, two words, Japanese, mm -hmm. and and like um, because of the nature of Japanese characters, depending on the context with which they are used how they are defined. So in the case of my name, on translates loosely into peace. Shin translates into heart or mind, but not in terms of the biological heart or mind. So on Shin, peace, you can just, for short, you can just call me peace heart. On <laughs> Shin, so peace of heart and mind. Yeah, peaceful heart and mind. Well, that's pretty beautiful. So a Zen Buddhist monk, Vietnam War veteran, author and founder of the Zaltho. Am I saying that right? Zalto. 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 I, I should have asked you all this before we started the recording. Foundation, which is a nonprofit foundation founded in 1993, dedicated to peaceful transformation of conflict, violence and trauma in individuals and groups. Claude Anshin was born in the United States and 47 his childhood began his exposure to violence and abuse and at the age of 18 he volunteered to serve as a combat soldier and helicopter crew chief in the vietnam war he was honorably discharged at the age of 20 and was awarded numerous medals including a purple heart today he states he carries the responsibility of much death and destruction after his return to the US, he experienced years of unemployment, social isolation, violence and addiction, battling severe post-traumatic stress. He began the, to walk the Buddhist path in 1990, leading to his full ordination as a Zen Buddhist monk into the Japanese Soto Zen tradition in August of 95. Claude Anshin realizes that the root of all war are 
not particular within a group, but within each and every member of society. He also realizes that the acceptance of our own vulnerability, aggression, fear, and individual suffering is the starting point for healing, transformation, and peace in this world. Today, Claude Onshin speaks publicly, leads retreats and meetings. He also visits religious and secular communities all over the world addressing this very important topic, the culture of violence and how they can tra uh, become transformed. Claude Anshin is the author of two books, his award-winning memoir, At Hell's Gate, A Soldier's Journey from War to Peace, and his latest book, published this year, Bringing Meditation to Life, 108 Teachings on the Path of Zen Practice. There it is. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. And wow. So I'll read a quote from your first book, When War Ends Within Us then war ends. If everyone ends the war within oneself, then there are no seeds any longer for which war can grow. And so that's an excerpt from your book at Hell's Gate. Okay. So would you say, yes, silly question. Uh, I'm getting the answer before I ask it, but I'm going to ask you anyway. So you joined as a soldier, as a young 18-year-old, because of the war within yourself? Do you think that that was what was going on? Do you think, yeah, anyway, got a million questions. Well, here's how I understand that process at this point in, in my life. So I actually joined the military when I was 17. And I volunteered to go to Vietnam um, when I was 18. Because at 17, I wasn't yet old enough to, um, to be sent off to war, sort of. Um, so my father had been a soldier in the Second War. Um, his father had been a soldier in the First War. And his father had been a soldier in the U.S. war with Spain. Um, they, they refer to that in our history books as the Spanish-American War. Spain, they call it something different. And so there's this history of, of, of military service and war service. Um, also, I grew up in a very small rural farming community in northwest Pennsylvania, up near um, one of the Great Lakes, Lake Erie. Um, most of the men in this community had served in the Second War. And, and the way my, my experience, uh, my memories of my experience with them is that they never told the truth of, their, of what it was like for them in war, what it was like for them in combat. They, I only heard the heroic stories. Mm. Um, I was being conditioned from a very young age, um, I was sort of poured in the funnel, uh, leading me only to one possible outcome, military service. Um, I'll also say that being born into the society and culture that I was born into, um, I, I was conditioned by that society and culture to, to view the world in a certain way. Um, one, I'm a white male. I was conditioned to see, uh, I was conditioned to be racist. Mm. That doesn't mean I want to be, or it doesn't mean that I, I currently am. But if I don't acknowledge how I was, how I have been conditioned, then the possibilities of my waking up to my racism and developing a, a more active and conscious relationship with that, so that I don't act in the ways in which I have been conditioned, will continue to to express themselves, and I will be in denial of that. Um, so that sort of conditioning establishes the groundwork 
of the roots of war in me. Absolutely. I have a very strong memory of being about seven. And I was scribbling on one of my parents' paintings on the wall, which I probably shouldn't have been doing. But I was thinking, if they try and conscript me into war, I'm not going to go. I'm not going to go. I'll refuse to go. Like a seven-year-old girl is thinking this. <laughs> you know, it's a very strong memory I still have today. So I've obviously spent, I've obviously been in war before. And um, obviously my grandfather was in the war. He was in both Second and First World War. He was buried alive in the Second World War. And uh, when they dug him up, he was in a coma and all his hair fell out. So he didn't have a hair on his, anywhere. He didn't have hair up his nostrils in his, any, anywhere, nowhere. But yes, it was painted as um, something good to do, wasn't it? Yes. Not, not only good, but necessary. Good and necessary. Do you think that that same conditioning still exists today in the minds of young people? I do. Do you? Yes. However, I also believe that there are now more of us who are willing to talk about the real cost of war. And there are those among us who are, there are more of us who are, who are willing to, to be more candid about our war experience, to not glorify it or dramatize it. I also realize that, that there's still a, a large number of people who are unable or unwilling, and I will say unable to do that. Um, because to do that, one must then necessar necessarily um, look, at, look at the whole world view that they've held on, to, held on to as an absolute fact, as reality. So to acknowledge that war isn't what we, military service and war service isn't what we have been led to believe it is, meant, means the deconstruction of our, of our whole worldview. It means our identity, suddenly our identity is gone. And, and, and people, that's, that's a frightening prospect for people, whether they understand that consciously or not, it's a frightening prospect for them. It was never, I, I, I never, when I, when I watched television and and what was shown on the television when I was growing up were the heroic war stories and, and always the battle between the indigenous population and the expansion into the West and the U.S. And, and I just, I couldn't wait. Right. And by the time I was five, I could sing the hymn of all the major armed forces groups in the United States. My father taught me that. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't wait. Yeah. Well, I have to say there are a lot of people coming out speaking about horrors of war today. Um, you know, people that served in the Iraq war, like young men that are still reasonably young today. Um, yeah, so it, it is coming out. It's, it's crazy that in 2021 we still have wars on this planet. I think that's crazy. Uh, I think it's crazy. But uh, there you go. And, and so what happened when you came back from war? Well, I could talk to you about let's, do you want to share a little bit about what you saw when you were over there? I mean, it's hard to, to do that briefly. What I can, what I can share in the, as intimately as possible within a short period of time is that um, as an 18-year-old, I was empowered to decide who lived and who died. And I was rewarded for that. 
Um, I'm, I'm a highly decorated soldier. Um, I can, I can, uh, I have, I've been responsible for um, the destruction of villages. I've been responsible for um, more deaths than I would, than I would wish to acknowledge or, or account for. I, the, and the, the consequences, emotional, spiritual, psychological consequences of, of committing those acts and witnessing those acts, because they've also been committed against me. Um, the, the consequences of that are inescapable and never go away. So I live with that. I live with the consequences of those acts today. And, and I'm what? Mm, let's see, 56 years removed from Vietnam. Um, I was injured. Um, I was wounded in combat. I was also injured. I make a distinction because um, the injuries didn't occur as a result of combat. Um, and I spent a significant time in military hospital. Um, when I was discharged from military hospital, um, I was discharged with two major dependencies. Um, narcotics, because that's what they were giving me for pain, and violence. And so you mix narcotics and violence, and, and that's, a, um, that's a lethal combination. So, so what, the way I view my life today, there was the war before the war. That's so all the activities that took place in my family and the community around me that, that, that was uh, instrumental in directing my choices. Then there was the war, and then there was the war after the war. Um, my life post-military service was chaotic, painful, and destructive, and and uh, and there is not one single thing I can do to change any of that. And so, what has happened for me, um, I am in some ways ever so thankful for. I mean, I wouldn't be in the place that I am today without those experiences. Some people ask me, "Oh, would you, if you had the chance, would you do it over?" And I go, "Well, first off, I don't, I, I don't have that chance." And second off, I am who I am today because of those experiences. I do not advocate or encourage them. I don't. But nonetheless, they, are, they have been the ground training to prepare me for the life that I'm living today. And that's a life committed to service and, being, uh, and making an effort to be the light at the tip of the candle to pass on the realities that violence is never a solution. And that the roots of that war and violence exist in me. If I'm willing to wake up to that conditioning that dictated the choices for me, um, then transformation is possible. Transformation then gives me the possibility to live at peace with my unpeacefulness. Wow. Have you gone into military organizations and spoken to them about your experiences? Yes. Yeah. Many? 
those who those who open their doors to me <laughs> yeah see because of my vows i can only go where i'm invited oh, okay. and so on occasions i have been invited and i i i am engaged in the, personally with people who are currently serving in the military yeah, yeah. they um i would never turn away from them yeah because at a certain point and even though oh, on the surface our um what we stand for is is quite it's quite polar opposite um i know that when there there'll come a point in time in their life when when all when they will not be able to turn away from the realities of their service and and i i, I want to be there for them okay yeah yeah so do you think do you believe that those people who died in war from their soul's perspective had planned it thus have what have planned it so did planned it well what makes sense to me and it's one of the things that drew me to buddhist practice mm -hmm. is that there is no separate self Mm -hmm. So there isn't something that continues. There isn't a soul. I mean, once this form ceases to exist, the only way that that I continue is in your memory and the memories of other people. Um, that makes sense to me. That works for me just now. Whether it's true or not, I have no idea. I haven't died. Um, uh, or if I have and it's different than that, I don't have any conscious awareness of that. I I actually don't think that those who have died in war planned it so. Mm, I, cer I certainly didn't plan it so. Not from your conscious perspective, but maybe from exactly. a higher perspective. Um, well, interesting. It's a very different message than what we share on the show. This show is all about who we are as soul, as multidimensional beings, as who we are beyond this physical body and this time space reality and in many others, both in spirit and in different dimensions and on different planets. And so I'm very up for that we continue. Funnily enough, my father, who was pretty agnostic, pretty atheist, he, he had the same view as the Buddhists. <laughs> he said, I won't continue, but my memory will, and I'll continue in my children. That's what he used to tell me. Yes, but I understand it so. Um, I will also say that, because um, um, I get asked this question, um, if I'm atheist or agnostic, and I said, I, I'm neither. You know, it's, it's just an irrelevant point for me. Um, there is a spiritual reality. And I mean, life, the reality of existence is spiritual. Um, and and spiritual spirituality for me that has nothing to do with what I think, say, or believe. It's how I am in this world. And what becomes an immensely critical for me is to be as present as I can in this physical space and time. Mm -hmm. um, beyond that, um, beyond that, if there is a beyond that, um, it will be revealed. Time will tell. Well, <laughs> you're talking to a medium and a psychic who speaks to people who are beyond that and has yeah. many memories of being beyond that. I have many memories of my past lives and uh, can tap into other people's past lives. So... We might have different views on that, but that's okay. <laughs> that's okay. There's still a beautiful message to be 
shared with any point of view. Yeah. Yes, of course. And and by all means, I I have. Uh, I mean, my experience is what it is. I I experience the world as I experience it. My practice supports me in that, and I value you and everything that you do. Absolutely. So obviously. The war increased when you came back from war because you had the war in your mind, um, trying to reconcile some of the actions, what you saw, some of your own actions. What was happening after you came back to the state? Well, I didn't, I wasn't attempting to reconcile. Um, I didn't know there was anything to reconcile. Yeah, I actually didn't know that my life was a mess. It just it was my life. Okay. Um, I think... Uh, drug use, alcohol use, drug use to include alcohol because alcohol is a drug, um, were measures which I used in an effort to keep what I will generically refer to as my suffering at a distance. Um, it sometimes would work, but mostly it stopped working. And and enough was never enough. Uh, one drink led to 10. It just, it didn't matter what it was. It just didn't work. It just led to more suffering. Um, I don't know. I can't really describe the, the, the process. I mean, I, was, I lived homeless for two years. I lived in, a, in an abandoned car in an alleyway in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I'm thinking that I had luxurious accommodation. I loved it there. It was, it was, I didn't have to deal with anybody. It was safe. I didn't have to interact with society. Um, I'm still not a, I'm not a, I'm not much of a social creature. Although it's, it's true, uh, pre-COVID, I'm, I'm very much in the public, but I'm in the public in a way that, um, that works for me. Um, I, I, lockdown and COVID was welcome for me. I, I mean, I liked it. I mean, because no one was around, the traffic was gone, more animals out, it was quiet, and really suited me. However, um, my, my life just was just, I was, I couldn't, it was impossible for me to have any kind of meaningful relationship with another human being. Um, I was, I couldn't, it was impossible for me. I couldn't get hired. I, if I did get hired, I couldn't hold a job. I had serious issues with um, authority. I didn't do well with authority. Um, I, I don't know when it was. It was at, at some point, I was led to, to go to a treatment center and to stop drinking alcohol and taking other drugs. And it was advocated that I stay stopped and I have. That was in 1983. And once I did that and, and took those layers of intoxication away, then the, all of the experiences and thoughts and memories and feelings that were buried underneath that began to surface. And it was through this process that I began to realize that, you know, a big piece of this is the war. And that that it's incumbent upon me to really make myself somehow available, um, to deconstruct all of the ideas 
that I've had about life so that I could then be reconstructed. And it was spiritual practice that facilitated that, as I, I define spiritual practice. How did you find the spiritual practice? <laughs> I, um, I didn't go looking for it. Mm-hmm. No, um, it wasn't. It wasn't a. It wasn't my decision to go to an alcohol and drug treatment center. It was recommended, and 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 I sort of said, well. I agreed and don't really know why I agreed to go. Oh, I see. So the, the, the Rehabilitation Alcohol and Drug Center introduced you to the spiritual practice. Well, introduced me to the spiritual reality of life. Right. So was that like AA or something? or, NA um, or? No, it was just, I just have a, I just, uh, I did connect with people post that, um, post that treatment uh, mm-hmm. experience. Um, and it's through the support of other people that I have been able to um, come to, to, to discover ways of, of living in a more conscious relationship with um, how I have been conditioned mm-hmm. and view and how alcohol and drugs were influencing my decisions. But it was after a period of time of not drinking alcohol or taking drugs, I... Um, I, I was in therapy with a social worker mm-hmm. and she recommended that I go to this retreat that was being facilitated by a Buddhist monk who'd done some work with uh, combat veterans and had had some success. Mm-hmm. She knew that traditional methods of that were not supportive to me. And, and um, I, I thought I didn't tell her, but I thought she was crazy and there was no <laughs> way I really wanted to go. Um, um, because it's, I heard Buddhist and it smacked too much of religion to me, but but I I agreed to go, and and I went, and it was that it was in that first meeting, where I had this realization that life, if I was willing to do things different, life could be different, and that as I healed, and that healing is not the absence of suffering. Um, as I healed. I could heal for, I could heal my mother and father in me. I could heal the family generations that manifest themselves in me. Mm-hmm. Um, I could heal for, I, I could heal for all those who have ever died in any war throughout space and time. Mm-hmm. And, and absolutely, and that just, that was the, that was the impetus to continue. I, 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 I like cats too. Yeah, the cats come to say hello. Hello. Uh, um, <laughs> uh, yes, this is actually very much what we talk about in my practice as a teacher and a healer, that as we heal our own wounds, we do so generationally, We, you know, because we're one. So as I heal the distortion within me, I'm healing my ancestors and I'm also allowing more freedom for the generations that come after me. Mm. There are places where we connect. <laughs> absolutely. Oh, see, this absolutely. Is, see, this is also what drew me to Buddhist practice. Mm. Is because the person who was the monk who was facilitating that retreat said, um, "There is no, there is no necessity to convert. Um, 
he also said to me, and it was repeated by the person I'm ordained by, which they're not the same, that it didn't matter what I thought, it didn't matter what I believed, it didn't matter what I said, it mattered what I did. That if I wanted my life to be different, I had to do things differently. And that the practices that they were passing on to me weren't the thing that I had to do. They weren't going to change, they weren't, they were simply tools that would help me to become more available to the information that life was give me about what I needed to do next. They weren't going to change me. They would only put me in a framework where transformation could become possible. Yeah. So how long did it take you um, to, uh, sort of a strange question as well, um, to feel like you weren't suffering from your own um, conditioning? How, how do I sort of to heal, I guess. How long did it take you to heal? Or are you still healing? <laughs> well, I, I would say healing is a, a continuous and ongoing right. process. Yeah. However, what the way I the way I understand your question is how long did it take me before I stopped feeling trapped? Right. Okay. These Thank repeating yeah. cycles of suffering. Okay. And and uh, you know I I don't actually know. It has been it's been a subtle. I haven't really. I'm not doing what I do with the intention intention to get something from it. I'm doing what I do just to do it, which is what I have been encouraged to do. And and as I commit myself to doing what I've been instructed to do just to do it, then I, I become more open to what that process reveals to me, and. And so this await this process of, of awakening to the tr to my trappedness and my ability to live in a different relation with that has been um, sometime it's been constant it's been gradual and sometimes there have been bursts where I've gone oh wow really okay beautiful yeah epiphanies aha moments yes uh -huh. there you go yes yeah. absolutely do, do you have you forgiven the people that create war ah this is another topic that often comes up um i i'm not a believer in forgiveness uh-huh yes i think forgiveness is lazy and it's too much it's too conceptual <laughs> um, it, it's really too easy it's like oh i forgive you oh, i forgive myself <laughs> What I what really makes sense to me is to understand, right? First, I need to accept this is like this because that was like that. Then understand that this is like as this is, that will become. And then through action, if I want things to be different, that I need to do things here now differently. And what that means to me often is not what I do, but what I stop doing. Mm. So I stopped doing things that were harmful to myself and others. Let's just let's just understanding and action. Let's just repeat that. Um, forgiveness is lazy. I don't think forgiveness is lazy at all. Having been a healer and teacher for 30 odd years, forgiveness can be one of the hardest things that people ever, ever try to do to those that they perceive have hurt them. And um, that's 
that's not lazy. <laughs> that is just not lazy. And I've seen huge transformation with people forgiving, huge. I have a friend who hated her sister for 40 years. It took me about a year for her to ring up her sister and tell her she loved her. And actually she didn't forgive her. She asked for her forgiveness for hating her for 40 years. And those 40 years of hatred melted away like they never existed. If I were to say to her, you hated your sister for 40 years, it was almost like she had amnesia. No, I didn't. It's like I've seen forgiveness. But I absolutely agree with understanding that because I've experienced this, I have an opportunity to desire something else. And when I follow that desire, I can create huge transformation and change in my own life and in others. Is that how you're putting it? Or... Acceptance, see, understanding, mm -hmm. acceptance, and action. That's what works for me. Uh, understanding, acceptance, and action. Yes. I, I would say, I that, I I would say that that is actually the recipe for forgiveness because one can't arrive at forgiveness without understanding acceptance. And then the action is the action of forgiveness. I know. Okay. So you don't talk about forgiveness, but um, we could use a different name for it. Yeah. I mean, if people work with that topic and, uh, and it works for them, I'm hands off. You know, if it works for them, that's great. And, and still what I advocate is understanding, acceptance, and action. Whatever name they put on that's okay with me. I don't care. Um, but to understand that this is like this because that was like that. There's not one thing I can do to change my past. Not one thing. Um, what, what I can do is I can... Um, I can live my life if I'm willing to wake up to how my past manifests itself in real time. I can then um, begin to do things differently in real time. And that leads to um, change going forward. As I am, the world becomes. As I am, the world becomes. Beautiful. All right. Well, I'll reframe that question. Uh, about the people who create war. Why do you think governments create war? Because it's never about what they say it's about. Like the last war that was prevalent in our Western understanding was the Iraq war. Uh, Afghanistan. They said, Afghanistan, yeah. Yeah, well, and they said, you know, there are terrorists and they're a threat and there's weapons of mass destruction, so we need to go in there and control these guys. And uh, then they found there wasn't any weapons of mass destruction. What do you think the motive is behind people who create war? You know, I, I have a really, it would be speculation on my part, mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm not keen to do that. Mm -hmm. um, what I will say is that governments don't create war, people create war, because governments are, the, are comprised of people. Mm -hmm. and, and so I'm, I'm, I'm more geared to, uh, instead of looking globally, and I mean, I don't take my eyes off of the global picture, but instead of looking globally, I come, I bring it down to its essential ingredient, which is the one. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I have visions of, of a, a drop of water um, falling down on a stone. Uh, and over time, that 
simple drop of water consistently falling on that stone will crack that stone. Mm -hmm. So I, I want to be the individual is that drop of water. Mm -hmm. And so my efforts are to support individuals into waking up to the roots of war, violence and suffering in them. Mm. And, and we all carry them. Are we willing oh, to wake up to that and do things differently? Absolutely. You know, people join the military for a variety of reasons. Uh, the military is such a mighty force in our world, such a might. It's so, it's so organized as, as um, Martin Luther King said, the people that love peace need to be as organized as the people that love war. It's so huge and organized. And many young men join because it's, it's a paycheck. They don't have to think, you know, they're told what to do, when to do it. They don't have to be too intellectual. They just follow orders. It's a paycheck. They can save money. And then there's my brother who um, probably many people, he, he spent 30 years looking out into the world and wondering how he could make a difference. And he wanted to create peace in this world. And the way that he thought he could create peace was by joining the military and becoming a peace part of the peacekeeping force that is the military says you know we keep the peace mm -hmm. by going into countries and keeping and so that was the story that he really aligned with and and now he's oh, i guess he's 50 in his 50s now so he's been in the military for 20 odd years and he thinks he's doing a really good thing what would you say to people like that um i, I i'm not arguing with them yeah. and i won't debate with them Mm -hmm. because it's not my job to convince them what I if they're willing to engage in conversation with me I mean I, I support I, su I support a younger man who's been in the military now going on 20 years mm -hmm. um, and he believes in what he's doing yeah one of the things that I make an effort to communicate is that peace is not what we call peace and peace can only be revealed to us through a disciplined spiritual practice, one rooted in and basic in the basic notions that violence is never a solution. Yeah. We cannot win peace at the point of a gun. Mm. We cannot win peace at the threat of dropping bombs. We cannot win peace. Um, you can beat a dog and get it to behave. Sooner or later, that dog sooner or later that dog may turn on you or turn on someone else. Mm -hmm. um, I I understand your brother's position because, it, in fact, I suppose that was one of the, the one of the one of the ideologies that that I would have espoused. Mm -hmm. That that I was volunteering to go into the military because I was asked to serve my country and I, I love my country. And that's still true today. Um, and I was, uh, I volunteered to go to Vietnam um, because I wanted to um, stop the advancement of the enemies of freedom and democracy. Mm -hmm. So to, to um, and, and it's the enemies of freedom and democracy that were a threat to peace. So I, I can, I understand that logic. It makes, it may, I, it was my logic, but it wasn't my logic. It was, it was uh, sold to me. And I, and uh, I didn't really have a choice. 
of, of whether to, to, to accept that or not accept that because I was exposed to that my whole life. Now, um, without meeting your brother, I have no idea what I would say. Well, I have to say when he was a young man, he was telling me this, I completely understood his logic and I completely understood his intention to want to be, make a difference in the world. And I supported him in that. And yet I knew that going into a, um, a system such as the military, that he would be completely indoctrinated into their way of thinking, which he is now. Yeah. Yeah. But he's, and, he, and yeah. At Sorry. a certain point, though, he has to get out. He does. Yeah. That military career will end. Like I've, I've told a couple of people who are in, in, who've done, who are, who have been in the military for a long time, whom I currently support, is that I say, as I share with them, I say, look, your view of the world is really small. Mm. But from their perspective, it's really big. Yeah. And, and what I explained to them, I said, yes, I know that. And in, in truth, and, and there is a truth to that. However, once you step out of that bubble, um, nobody really cares what you've done. And you're going to discover that the world is a lot bigger than um, how you than what you ever imagined, and it's that transformation that um, is so difficult for young men and women to make. That's why in this country we're looking at 22 plus suicides a day. Um, this is in the military. No, this is after they've gotten out. Oh, I mean, sorry. there are increased numbers. There are increasing numbers of suicides in the military. I don't know what those numbers are because the military is not always candid about that stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, war extends. This idea of war is so it's so vast in our society, in our dimension. I would use in this third dimension. We are at war with everything. We are at war with aging. We are at war with disease. We are constantly at war and we're going through another war at the moment, you know, the war against the virus. It's mm -hmm. like, I know that you don't, you think more, you, you think more sort of personally than globally, but I think that as we look at this global experience, it comes down to what we believe in ourselves and what we're, and the choices that we're making for ourselves based on what we believe personally, but commercials, you know, are having us at war all the time. Like, women are at war against what they look like so they plaster their face with makeup as i have done today <laughs> completely indoctrinated you know like we're at war with aging and wrinkles and everything there is this perpetual war with everything don't you think um i no i wouldn't argue with that but i can say that you know i'm not i'm not at war no you're not but most people are and yeah. and i can live that outside and when people when i'm willing to enter when people are willing to interact with me. That's why I'm, I'm always so thankful to have these opportunities to, to meet with, with groups of people. And I get invited to, to, to share with them, to talk with them, um, to give them, or to present, not give them, to present with them another way, another perspective of looking at the world. Invite them to take the risk instead of just doing the easy thing, which is to oh, well, this is what's going on and we just buy into that. Let's take a step back and, and look at what we're being told from different angles of perception. You know, I'm, I'm, not at, I'm not at war with the virus. However, I'm also, while I'm, 
while it's true that um, the, the, the decisions that I make for myself are not only for myself. The decisions that I make for myself also impact the larger whole because I am part, I am, I am just a part of a larger interconnected reality that extends beyond my imagination, beyond space and time. Now, as I take care of myself, I'm also taking care of the larger interconnected whole. So I always have to explore, are my decisions, um, are, my, are, are my decisions um, in considering that, can, am I able to consider my decisions based on the impact that it could possibly have on a larger interconnected whole? Mm. So I'm willing to do what I'm willing to do whatever I can to be uh, to that end. So the Zen Buddhists don't believe in a higher power of any sort. I, I, I won't speak for all of Zen Buddhism. I can only speak for this Zen Buddhist. Uh -huh. And I will say that. Um, uh, mm, I, I don't know that I would refer to existence in that way, but I would say that um, uh, that when I can that in when I sit and in the and in the silence connected to my breath, when I I experience the enormity of the interconnected whole of which I am a part, mm -hmm. that's pretty impressive. That's really that's there's something. Quite, there's quite something about that experience. It, it's like uh, looking, looking out into the, looking out into a night sky, and knowing, intellectually knowing, that that extends so far beyond anything I can even conceive of. Mm -hmm. That it's endless out there. There's no way that I can ever experience that endlessness. Uh, but I am an essential part of that. That's, that's, that's quite something. Yeah. And how does Zen Buddhism dovetail with like quantum physics? Ah, quantum physics. Yes. I would say my experience with Zen practice is more in line with chaos physics. Mm -hmm. You know chaos physics? For every action, there's a consequence. Mm -hmm. We simply cannot know when that consequence will manifest itself or to what degree. We can only be certain that it will manifest itself. Mm -hmm. So, in the in a, from a from a um, a scientific study position, uh, that makes sense. chaos physics makes sense. It, it it fits with what I've been introduced to, what I've been exposed to, in terms of the the interconnected stream of teaching that's been passed down for eight generations. Mm -hmm. So you've obviously had years of meditation at this point. Had, years of meditation. Well, at this yes. Point. Okay. That's another talk. That's a topic. But I'll just right now, rather than go off, I'll say yes. And in your meditation, have you noticed your psychic abilities expand, or does Zen does Zen practice not include psychic abilities? I, I actually I don't think about that, and I wouldn't say. Like from my experience, I wouldn't, I don't really, I, I, I sit just to sit. I walk just to walk. I eat just to eat. Um, 
I work just to work. Um, what I do notice is that the more intimately I become, the more intimate I become with myself, the more aware I become of the dynamics that are what or what I have called self, the more intimate I become connected to those, um, the more um, clear my interactions with others become. Now, some some people have accused me of being able to read minds. It's right. not true. I can't read minds. It's just that, that because because I'm I'm willing to to know myself more intimately, or or um, I'm willing to accept myself more intimately. It, it's so much easier to understand what's happening in others. Um, some people think I can walk through walls. That's not true. I can't. <laughs> you know, I still need a door. But people are looking for these. They're looking for these, um, these, these super experiences, these transcendent experiences. And and what I I continue to to say this: the most powerful experience for me is being able to really walk with both feet planted on the earth and to be conscious of that. Mm-hmm. It, and and to 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 engage in what I'm doing just to do it. Mm-hmm. I, I I will often ask people in public what's the most important thing in their life, mm-hmm. and then people will say this, that, and the next thing, and and then I uh, I'll bring my assistant up, um, or the person who assists me, and I I will um, sit in a chair, and then I will um, ask the people to. And as best as possible, imagine they're in my skin. And then what I do, what I do is I, I will uh, have my the, the person who's assisting me cover my nose and my mouth. And what will happen is at the point at which I need to breathe, I'll tap their hand. And initially they don't take it away. And then at a certain point, I'll grab the hand, remove it, take a deep breath, and then I'll ask them, I'll ask the group. So at that moment, what was the most important thing in my life? And um, most people understand that it is one breath. So my premise is that breath is the foundation of life. It doesn't matter what we think. It doesn't matter what we believe. I mean, if we, if we don't have access to that breath, we don't exist. And then I ask people, how much time do you spend actually aware that you're breathing? Mm-hmm. And most people take breath for granted until mm-hmm. they can't get it. And so I invite people just to sit, cultivate breath, breath awareness. And then in the process of doing that, we become conscious of what distracts us from breath awareness. And that's where we get a chance to polish the stone. And life then has a chance to reveal itself to me. Life at that point has a chance to reveal itself to us. This is great. I love it. Thank you. <laughs> uh, it does. Uh, it does. You know, I, I, I agree with everything you're saying, not because of I'm intellectualizing it, because I've experienced it. Uh, yes. And you wouldn't be doing what you're doing if you hadn't. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when I was a young girl, I went and did Vipassana meditation, which is the 10 day meditation retreat, which is a oh, yeah. Buddhist, which is a Buddhist prayer. Now, when you say young girl, I think I mean like what age? Oh, I was like 25. Oh, oh, younger. 
younger, yeah, when I was younger. Uh, And, um, you know, it was interesting as we were taught to be more conscious of the breath and to feel the energy moving through our body. What immediately happened to me was, bang, I saw myself in all these past lives. And in fact, the one that I remember the most was I saw myself as a woman walking through the rubbles of war. It looked like England. It looked like World War II. Walking through the rubbles of war. But apart from the image, it was the feeling I felt that the, the, the sense of hopelessness, the sense of the pain that I was feeling. So, yeah, so for me, meditation has very much got me in touch with uh, my multidimensionalism, like beyond this, beyond the breath, beyond this world, beyond this body, who I am beyond this body. Um, it's great to come back into this body and be present in every moment with the breath. But actually that awareness of this moment and the breath kind of expands the awareness of all that is, of everything else. It's sort of interesting. And it's also important to keep in mind that meditation and daily life are not two things. Yeah. Meditation, meditation cannot be taught. Mm-hmm. All I can do is pass on the form mm-hmm. to people and help them to understand that the form is not meditation. Meditation is revealed to us through the pro- process of being loyal to the form. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Beautiful. So the book, the book, the book. Which bringing, one? bringing meditation to life 108 108 teachings on the path of zen practice so there appears to be a lot of teachings about meditation in the book yeah sure oh i would say rather reflections mm-hmm. yes and people that read the book how do you think it'll help them meditate so for most people who come to me they battle with the monkey mind with the mind that's doing shopping lists and the have tos and the what nexts and the the questioning mind. And, you know, when I was in the Vipassana meditation all those years ago, that was so distracting for about the first three days. That was like almost torturous for about like my body is uncomfortable. I'm in pain. I don't like want to sit here all day. You know, there's complaint. I was in complaint and suffering, you know, like I'm hungry. I'm tired. Oh, I want to get up. And, you know, the mind going, <laughs> And then after about day three or four, I can't remember, it quietens. It just quietens. It just ceases. It just it doesn't stop, but it just quietens. Um, so what would you like to say about people that suffer with that when they sit to meditate? Tell them to keep sitting. <laughs> but, you know, they don't. They sit and then they, like, get crazy and they go, oh, God, I can't do this, and they don't, and they just don't do it. I don't argue with them then. <laughs> It, then it, they're, they're perfectly, you know, I, I'm not here to proselytize. I'm saying, if you want things to be different, you have to do things different. If you do this, it will help you to discover what that way is. But if you don't, if you're not willing to slow down, then I can only share with you from my experience that if nothing changes, nothing changes. You know, yeah. we can paint the wall green. It's still a wall. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it was interesting in my search for meaning and the he- and meaning to like why we get sick and how we can heal. Not too far into it, like again, in my early 20s, I discovered people like Patria King in Australia and um, I can't forget his name. I forget his name. In, he's in another state. Anyway, so these were people that had been diagnosed with terminal illness, cancer, 
Mm-hmm. Um, the one that's named that I've gone, I interviewed him about 12 years ago. He had his knee amputated, uh, his leg amputated below the knee or around the knee. Uh, and they said, you know, you're riddled with cancer, you're going to die. And they basically meditated and connected to that, oh, whatever you want to call it. I don't know what you were like, higher intelligence or awareness or you know, like field or some people call yeah. it God, you know, whatever you want to call it. And, and healed. And I thought, wow, it's that easy. It can be that easy. It's like all we need to do is get still and get connected and all things can be healed. Pain, illness, stress, it can be that easy, right? Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe not. It worked for him. Well, it's, work, it's worked for many, but yeah. It's worked for many. It hasn't worked for everybody. Well, it hasn't worked for everybody, but then is, is death the failure to heal, I don't think so. No, I think death is just simply a natural, I mean, this this form will only exist for so long. Yeah, it wears out. How how I take care of this form now has some bearing on how long it can exist, but not not entirely. I mean, it's, the future is unknown. And I think people, people are so, they so much want to know what the future is so that they can deal they can deal with this here and i tell them you could deal with this here the future will take care of itself exactly it will yeah. um i mean my father it was interesting that you shared about your mom my father died when he was 53 he um died in his sleep wow uh from a massive coronary that's how it was diagnosed mm-hmm. um he he turned 53 at the end of May, and he died in um, sometime in July. Mm-hmm. Um, he, but my father drank alcoholically, smoked 50 to 60 cigarettes a day, and had a horrible night. I knew when he died that his lifestyle killed him. Yeah, his un, his inability to. Um, transcend his conditioning, which was to not, um, to attempt, the war's over, forget about it, and get on with your life. Mm-hmm. The, you know, whatever it was that we experienced, the car crash, and that happened yesterday, so like, just forget about it, get on with your life. Yeah? Just put it behind you. And, and that's a tragic piece of information. But we also have to, I think, there's also... Uh, the danger of getting trapped in um, in an attachment to our suffering. So we at one on one on in one breath we have to really embrace it. On another breath, we have to be careful that we don't get trapped in it. Mm-hmm. And it be, doesn't become an identity for us. And I think that is another dilemma that we face in this society and culture. Oh yeah, I've seen that. Whew, I've seen that. Imagine you have. Yeah. Yeah, it was interesting. Mum was pretty miserable uh, and hence uh, I think that she put all her attachment on the material world, on the body, mm-hmm. on her looks, on ageing, on beauty, on money, on status, place in the world. And none of that brought her happiness and so she was very unhappy. We're going to end soon. I see you looking at the clock. And uh, when Dad left her for a pretty younger version, you know, a young, pretty 24-year-old model, Mum in her mid-40s 
just hated herself to death. I, I watched that. She hated him. She hated her. She hated herself. And it took five short years to, to, to hate herself to death. Like I absolutely saw that. So in saying yep. that she was a brilliant teacher, and I'm going to tell you something else, which is probably you're not going to agree with, and I don't want to convince you that years later, she came back. She's now in her mid twenties again, but she came back as a family member. And I was told when she was a baby and I was holding her that she was back. And I've watched this human being, um, try and fulfill all the unfulfilled desires that were in the past life. And it will be interesting to me to watch her deal with those, uh, those things that were unfulfilled in the form of health and, you know, and, and, and un, unwinding the negative thoughts, like un, transmuting and letting go of that hatred and resentment that she experienced in a past life. I know you don't believe in reincarnation. Well, this is my experience. This, no, I just... It doesn't matter what I think believers say. What I all I would say about that is that um, I hope that that if that's the case, that this time around, um, she gets to do it different. Yeah, I'm sure she will. That's all I would say about that. <laughs> because also with, I mean, also there's this whole notion of reincarnation within Buddhist practices, mm -hmm. um, and um, I, I experience, I, I don't deny the reality of reincarnation. I just experience it more um, immediate. And while, yes, I was looking at the clock, it's also true that if you wanted to talk for another two hours, I would stay here with you. <laughs> no, we'll wrap it up in a minute. <laughs> we'll wrap it up. It's no, really, it's just, I really, I really, this is really nice. I really value this conversation. Thank you. It's been fascinating to talk to you. I, I don't know too much about zen buddhist practice so i'm learning through you today it's been interesting to hear about well what you believe anyway i don't know if everyone believes the same but that's been fascinating but like you say um i don't have any sort of structured religious practice i take from all of them i think all of them everything you know the the buddhists and the hindus and the catholics and the jewish and the muslims i think they all have something to teach us uh so where do we where do we connect? There's always a connection there, yeah, with all of them, yeah. What, what, I, what I have discovered is that I needed to be grounded and in, in stable in, a, in an established tradition. That then liberated me to see where I was connected with all those traditions around me. Mm. Uh, that I wasn't, that where do we connect? Not where we are, not where we're different. And that, um, and, and today, I, you know, I, like, Right now, I don't have any enemies, not one. Yeah. Five minutes, eh, I don't know. But right now, <laughs> I don't have it. And right now is all that matters. Right now is all that matters. Right now, that's all that matters. Well, in a, in a channel text that I read years ago, again, as a younger woman in my 20s, mm -hmm. uh, he said that um, uh, all your power is in the now. All your power is in the now. That's, you don't have any power in yesterday or tomorrow. You're, it's all here in this moment. Well, yeah. the past and future don't exist. The only thing that exists is right now. Is right now. We can't think ourselves into right now. Yeah, you can't think yourselves into right now. And if we imagine we're living right now, we're not living right now. We're imagining that. We have to live right now. Be here now. He also said, we create our own reality. Two rules to life. We create our own reality and there are no limits and all your power is in the now. <laughs> That was a channeled text from an unembodied entity coming through a human form. Probably the Zen Buddhists were, are not up for that 
sort of thing. But anyway, that's, um, I had a girlfriend who was a Buddhist monk, uh, sorry, Buddhist, not a monk, Buddhist for many years. And I gave her a book that changed my life. And the, and the title of it is called Conversations with God. And she couldn't open it because she said, I can't read this book. It has God on the cover. And she gave it back to me. And I said, what's wrong with that? And she said, we don't believe in God. And I Well, said, then okay. she doesn't know. Then she doesn't understand the first thing about her practice. Well, interesting. I think she's changed her mind. That was many years ago. So do Buddhists believe in God? Is, is there some sort of form of God that they believe in? No, it really no. doesn't matter. I mean, if you, if you look in the studies of, of um, in the studies of, of Buddhism as it has evolved through, through its movement through different cultures and, and customs, there is, in some circles, there is a God realm. Mm -hmm. There isn't just one God, and in, and the gods themselves are quite selfish, mm -hmm. and because they they use um, the world around them and and those of the lesser realms, they use them for their own pleasure and benefit. And and but the truth is, I, I have enough. I have enough to deal with right here. <laughs> I don't need to. I don't need to think about all that stuff. I mean, I, I'm studied. I'm learned. And and I'm always looking. Okay, so what, how does this? How does that show itself? How does that reflect itself? How does that teaching reflect itself in practical terms in my life today? Yeah, get it like that. Yeah. So before we go, when you leave this this earthly realm, uh, wherever you think you go or don't go, what would you like your legacy to be? What would you like your message to be to people? Yeah, I, 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 I'm not concerned about that. Not concerned about that. I'm not concerned about legacy or message. I'm concerned about uh, waking up to what prevents me from living my life, living fully in my life, living fully in the opportunity that I have presented to me in this form. So why did you write the books? I was invited to. Mm -hmm. But is there not a message in the books for people, a teaching? I tell you, for as many people as read these books, they're going to get whatever they get out of them. Yeah. Any piece of info, any piece of, for example, life is life is fluid. Suffering comes when we attempt to attach fixed ideas to the fluid, unfixed process that is life. Everything, absolutely everything that comes into existence will pass away. What someone, what another person takes out of that is what they'll take out of that based on the conditioning that they've inherited and, and what they've been exposed to in their lives. So I'm not attempting to really, I'm You're not actually, attempting to teach, you're just sharing what you've come to know. That's right. Right. Because in fact, that. as I've been told, as, so I, I walked, um, pilgrimage was a, an essential part of my practice for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, one of the pilgrimages that I did, and and I live, I live, um, I live as a mendicant. I'm I'm not permitted permitted to work in a gainful way. I don't have insurance. I don't have, um, I don't have retirement. I don't have any of those sort of social trappings. Mm -hmm. When I I walk from um, New York City, from Yonkers, New York, which is just north of New York City, I walk walk from Yonkers, New York, to San Francisco. I walk right through the middle of the United States. I walked in robes without money. Um, and having to beg for everything. Mm -hmm. um, 
people ask me why I didn't. I said, just to walk, see what happens. I'm sorry, I'm thinking of Forrest Gump. There's a few things that you said that I keep going back to Forrest Gump. <laughs> yeah, right? People say, oh, yeah, no, Forrest was a runner, man. I, I was a walker. <laughs> there was something else you said that I went straight to Forrest Gump. I can't remember what it is now. Like the, the image of the movie went, whoop. Yes. Uh, it's, it's been beautiful to explore your journey more. What, what an amazing life you've led, honestly. it's uh, It's been a full life. It's been an amazing life. And um, I know that you don't have a message, but I think your message is beautiful to, you know, come back to this moment. There's your message or sharing what you've come to understand. And uh, Claude Anshin, thank you so much for chatting with us today. Yes. And uh, Miss Karen Swain, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. And I want to thank everyone who tunes in um, for tuning into the podcast. And, and, and I, I uh, thank you for listening. Amazing conversation with Claude Unshin. I think I'm getting that Unshin, Unshin Thomas. Mm, it was incredible to explore Zen Buddhism. I thought I knew a little bit about it, but I actually don't think I know anything about it having had that conversation with him. Yeah, fascinating a very focused practice, a, a very Eckhart Tolle, isn't it? Very power of now, be in the moment. So he doesn't even want to entertain thoughts of what happened before, what comes next, uh, past lives not interested, future lives not interested, um, reincarnation not interested, just not really interested in a lot of things that we talk about in the spiritual community because the only thing that's important is being here in this moment of now. Uh, and present to this moment and to the breath. But, you know, I've heard this many times from people with that sort of spiritual practice. But there's nothing wrong with being in this moment and thinking about things that are not about this moment. Because as you think about the future, you can experience the excitement of the future in this moment. And as you think about the past, you can experience the wisdom of the past in this moment. So it's all about the feeling that's in the moment, not living in the past or the future, but experiencing thoughts of past and future and how that impacts you in this moment. So I don't think it's a waste of time completely thinking about the past or the future, whether you're thinking about the past beyond this physical form, past lives or future lives or other planet lives. How does that impact you as who you are and how you navigate this world in this moment of now? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I don't think that the philosophy is diametrically opposed. I think it dovetails beautifully. But I get a sense of it's a very powerful, disciplined practice of trying not to stray too far from this moment. Something that he said to me, which was interesting, was I only go where I'm invited. And I thought that was interesting because I did not invite him on the show. His PA reached out to me and asked him to put him on the show. So I guess that his PA is reaching out, asking him to be put on podcast shows. And then he's being invited to be on the show. That was kind of interesting. But um, he has been doing a lot of podcast shows of late because uh, he is trying to get the word out about his book, 
And I suspect it's not to earn money from the book because he doesn't really participate in the money system or, you know, wanting to earn money is not really, it's not really something he thinks about. (laughs) I don't think about it much either, I have to say. Uh, uh, And he says that he has no message and yet he's written the book. So there's a message there. But it is really to share what he's been through and, and what, yeah, he's understanding his understandings of life. I mean, that's all we can all do, really, isn't it? When we write a book, is just to share our understandings. Some, well, you can take it or leave it. Uh, that's why I put people's stories on the show. Uh, their story illustrates why they understand what they do, who they are, why they teach what they teach. It really illustrates how you arrived at that understanding. As I shared with, uh, as I shared with Claude Unchin, keep wanting to call him Thomas. Uh, I, I shared some of my past and experiences, why I, why I have arrived at my understandings, and and everything he teaches in way of practice, not in way of philosophy. I completely agree with because I've lived it. So my understanding comes from my living it, not just understanding it. And um, he talks about being connected to the breath and being connected to this moment. Expands your awareness. You know, that's exactly what meditation did for me. Uh, Yeah. Fascinating. We had an even more fascinating, I shouldn't say even more, but I I kept quizzing him after I turned off the recording. he was telling me about his religious upbringing. His parents took him to church, uh, some sort of Protestant Christian, because um, I told him something I won't really share publicly, but I tuned into him and I told him who he was in a past life. Uh-uh. <laughs> Even though he doesn't believe in past lives, I said, you can take this or leave it, but I was given this information about you. And, um, and then we started talking about Christian religion and I asked him about you know what his experience was with that and he said that um, his parents took him to church initially and then they stopped because their lifestyle didn't include it anymore I don't know it sounds like they were drinking and carrying on and church wasn't you know they didn't have enough time they would it sounds like they were too drunk to get up to go to church on a Sunday morning or they, they just didn't want to get up it was too early or whatever so he, he he wanted to continue going to church and he said that he continued going to church with his friends when he was a little boy and uh, his friends took him to all different churches, Christian churches, different sort of flavours, Protestant, whatever, Catholic. And um, he said that at the age of 10, he had been to many different churches and they were all saying the same thing and none of it made sense to him. So at the age of 10, he just thought, no, I'm not having anything to do with that. Even though as a young boy, younger than 10, he really wanted to keep going to church. Uh, so he wanted to keep exploring. I thought that was really interesting. And then he's decided that every church was saying basically the same thing and none of it really made sense to him. So there is some hierarchical God that is offering you ways in which to live your life. And if you don't um, do what God tells you to do, then you're going to go to heaven or hell. You know, you're going to go to hell. And he said, no, it's not making sense to me. I thought that was interesting. Yeah. I was telling him that it didn't make sense to me and I didn't go to church. I just sort of heard about it in the odd scripture lesson at school and none of it, that sort of philosophy about God handing out rules and regulations. And if you didn't follow them, you were sent to do two different places when you die. It was all about, you know, it was all about where you go when you die. 
as opposed to how you live in this moment of now, which is a very different philosophy to the Zen Buddhist philosophy, isn't it? The Zen is all about the now and many kind of established corporate Christian religions are all about being good now so you'll get rewarded later. So it's all about the later, not telling you that, you know, how you think and feel in the now is all about the now. It's all about being here now. So anyway, so so Claude shared a few more of pearls of wisdom with me, a few more of, of his experiences. Yeah, fascinating man. He said he'd never been to Australia and he loves to travel and speak. Uh, but I don't think he'll I don't think he'll get down here. Maybe, maybe in the future if he lives to be a ripe old age. He's 74 now. He looks good. I'm sure that he'll live well into his 80s, maybe into his 90s. Not predicting that, just that's what I think. Um, yeah. Anyway, I'm gonna go. Love to hear your thoughts on Zen Buddhism or at least on his interpretation or his life experience. Uh, I think his I think his books would be fascinating. We can all take a leaf out of his book, Bringing Meditation to Life, and his um, A Soldier's Journey from War to Peace. That would be a great read. I haven't read either of them, I have to say. Hell's Gate, A Soldier's Journey from War to Peace. I'll have the affiliate links on my website if you want to buy the books through my affiliate links. I always have all the affiliate links to all the books. I <laughs> never tell anybody about that. But it does give um, it does give me or the show a couple of cents. You don't have to use the affiliate links. I'm sure you'll find them on Amazon. Without my affiliate links, it's up to you. Thanks again for listening and watching. And uh, who do we have coming up? Josie Thompson's coming up this weekend in the Inner Sanctum. My Sunday, Saturday in the US. Uh, she's amazing. She's been on the show this year. I met her through a friend. I was looking for speakers for the High Self Expo that I was doing with Zane Daniel. I was looking for Australian speakers and a friend introduced me to, to Josie. She lives in Queensland and uh, she's just gorgeous, brilliant, amazing, amazing life, amazing journey. Um, she's absolute delight. And then the last guest teacher for this year will be Tannis Helliwell, who I've had on the show. She speaks about, you know, the nature spirits and, oh gosh, Tannis can speak about everything. She's amazing. She really is incredible psychic, tapped in, turned on, tuned in teacher who speaks with all the realms of existence including the nature realms and spiritual realms and other dimensions and she's incredible she's a wealth of information canadian canadian yeah so she'll be our last speaker and then next year i'm going to change up the uh, inner sanctum but i'll tell you more about that later thanks again for listening and watching and remember if you haven't checked out the book awakened by death please do so bye for now